Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. Once again, as I have done several times this year, I apologize for another prolonged absence away from the show due to many illnesses and a busy work schedule. However, I believe I have found a solution to my scheduling issue, which I shall explain in a moment. Before I do that, however, I would like to mention that today, September 17th, would have been Roddy's 91st birthday. And in honor of this special day, I am finally, after two years of planning, presenting Cleopatra to all of you for today's episode. Much like the film production, this podcast has had a rough time getting off the ground, and it has taken almost as long to get made as the movie did. But as a dear friend of mine once said, things that are worth doing take time, and this podcast has definitely been worth doing. That being said, Though Cleopatra was one of the most important films Roddy ever worked on, not only professionally but also personally, he only had a very small role in the film, appearing for maybe a total of 45 minutes, if even that, out of a nearly four-hour film. And since he did not have a starring role, the research focuses heavily, and I do mean heavily, on Elizabeth Taylor. However, this film changed Roddy's life for the better. It was a pivotal role for him, not only bringing him closer to his friends amidst many trials encountered on the production, but also proved to be his official film comeback, bringing him more focus and recognition, and solidifying him forever in Hollywood as a serious and capable adult actor. Now, before I begin the show, I would like to continue with what I was saying earlier about how I have solved my scheduling problem. All these months when I was struggling to get an episode out, I realized that my main issue was that I had too much content to contend with. Writing out the various film synopses and extensive detail was great for the first year of the show, but as my career grew, I found I no longer had time to do the show in the same format. I also learned that the trivia section of each episode was not only more popular with my listeners, but that I enjoyed doing that part of the show most. So... Starting with today's episode, I am now unveiling a new and improved format for Not Just Yesterday. From now on, I will no longer be doing a film synopsis for each episode. The show will now be behind-the-scenes trivia and research only, with occasional exceptions being if there is no research available for a rare movie or a TV episode that is being discussed. This will not only cut down on production time, but will also make getting the episodes out a little more frequent and easier for me to do. Although, the shows will be coming less frequently, but I think you will find the quality improved to make up for the longer waits between each episode. I have been in talks with several people over the last few months for some new spins on episodes to come in the future, so hopefully I will have some new and exciting things lined up for you for the remainder of the 2019 and upcoming 2020 seasons. But enough of announcements and explanations for now, it's showtime. So, without further ado, here is episode 17 of Not Just Yesterday. Every night at seven, you walk in as fresh as clover, and I begin to sigh all over again. Every night at seven, you come by like me returning, and me, oh my, I start in yearning again. You seem to bring far away spring near me. I'm always in full bloom. 
When you're in the room for every night at seven Every time the same thing happens I fall once again in love But only with you Cleopatra, the seductive and legendary Egyptian queen. Her memory has captured the minds and hearts of people all over the world for thousands of years. The intrigue, beauty, and mystery she left behind have been an addictive muse for artists and poets everywhere since the beginning of her reign. Writers like William Shakespeare and George Bernard Shaw wrote entire plays based on her conquering love affairs with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. And songwriters like Jerome Kern wrote cute little ditties about her, such as this song, which was sung by June Allison until the clouds roll by in 1946. In days of old, beside the Nile, a famous queen there dwells. Her clothes were few but full of style, her figure slim and spells. On every man that wandered by, she pulled the feet of Barah. And everyone observed with awe that her work was swift, but never wrong. I'd be like Cleopatra if I could have my way. Each man she met, she went and kissed, and she dozens on her waiting list. I wish that I had lived there beside the pyramid for a girl today. Don't get the scope. Simply used to knock them flat when she went like this and then like that. That dancing Cleopatra was always on the spot. She gave those poor Egyptian ginks something else to watch beside the Sphinx. Mark Antony admitted that what first made him skid was the wibbly wobbly wibbly dance. The story of Cleopatra would prove to be of continual inspiration for creative minds in the entertainment industry since the infancy of film, and this obsession would prove to be nearly ruinous to the industry it would soon save. The late 1940s proved to be a difficult time for the studio system in Hollywood after the United States Supreme Court stripped the studios of their theater chains. This came after the discovery was made that the studios were advertising and premiering films they didn't even own the rights to in order to gain capital. This is discussed briefly in Stephen Bach's book, Marlene Dietrich, Life and Legend, 
which was narrated by Roddy, on pages 376 and 377. Since this book was heavily abridged at the time of its recording, there are some key sentences of text in the book that did not end up in the audio. Due to this being the case, I shall record any missing sentences between Roddy's narration from the audiobook for the next minute. I also apologize in advance, as the sound quality of the recording is somewhat inferior. Jobs were scarce. It wasn't just grandmothers over 50 having trouble with the movies. Movies themselves were in trouble. The studios had been forced to separate themselves from their theater chains in the fateful consent decree, brought about principally by the block booking practices Paramount had made notorious during Marlena's reign there. They had used her films as the lever for booking lesser product in theaters they did not own. All the major companies twisted arms and extorted playing time in this way, and the high court separated them from their own theater chains as punishment. Removing a key rung from the ladders of vertical integration, production, distribution, exhibition, on which they had climbed to riches and global dominance. At the same time, television was making insidious inroads on audience habits and tastes, which were changing in the new post-war rhythm. The studios cut their assets, who went home at night anyway, as the wisecrack went, loosing an immense talent pool on the small screen and making possible a new world of independent production no longer ruled by the old moguls and czars, who wandered off to pasture in high dignity or high dudgeon to become popes of Palm Springs while bean counters took over Babylon. This decree by the government, removing the studio system of one of its most lucrative money-making schemes, was financially devastating. And this loss, as well as the newly found success of television, ended up cutting movie audiences by as much as 40%. All of the studios were affected, chief among them, 20th Century Fox, who found itself floundering and desperately in need of funding to keep afloat. The studio system had broken down. If you were in the studio system at 20th, in the 40s, there was this huge, successful operation. Now, as it began to fall apart in the middle 50s, it was, it was just entirely different, an entirely different sort of plant. The studio floundered for a decade and finally found the wolf to be too close to its door. In a desperate attempt to save the company, Sparrows P. Scorus, who was president of Fox at the time, toyed with the idea of selling the studio's back lot to real estate developers in order to gain capital. But after a series of highly publicized films with massive names in the leading roles, like William Holden, John Wayne, and Marilyn Monroe, made by 20th flopped dreadfully at the box office, it was quickly discovered that selling the property would only bring in enough money to temporarily resolve their financial difficulties. Finding itself without any other choice, 20th Century Fox decided on making a major motion picture epic in order to avoid bankruptcy. Scorus therefore ordered David Brown, who was an executive at 20th, to search the Fox library for an idea which could quickly and cheaply be made into a film to save the studio. Brown agreed, and came across the script for the 1917 version of Cleopatra, which, starring Theda Berra, had been very successful at the time of its release. Scorus approved the idea, and Cleopatra was chosen to save the studio. However, though Scorus and all executives agreed unanimously on the story, the studio was unable to find a producer for the epic, until Brown was approached by Walter Wanger, 
who practically begged the executive to allow him to produce the film. Wanger needed a big picture to bring himself back to success after a brief fall from grace. Wanger's wife, actress Joan Bennett, had been having an affair with her agent, and Wanger, after having found them together in flagrante delecto in a car, shot the guilty lover in such a place that consummation of any affair from that point onward would be impossible. Wanger was incarcerated for his crime of passion for four months, and was hoping that Cleopatra would help him bring his career back on track. 20th Century Fox eagerly agreed to allow him to produce the film. He was then handed and told to rehabilitate the ancient script, which had appallingly deteriorated with age, and, being a silent film script, had no dialogue, and get it into theaters as soon as possible. Fox gave him under $2 million, 64 days, and the studio's backlot to make the movie. Now the difficulty of finding a leading lady was placed in Wanger's lap. He was presented with a list of actresses from Fox's roster of affordable contract players, which included big names like Joanne Woodward and Joan Collins, who was given a screen test for the role. But Wanger was unsatisfied with the actresses he saw. He had dreamed of making Cleopatra for years and was afraid the production would have a cheap and unsavory feeling if it didn't meet his expectations. Hoping for the production of his dreams and paying out of his own pocket, Wanger hired John DeCure, an Oscar-winning set designer, to create beautiful exotic sketches and models for presentation to studio executives, hoping to sell them on his idea. It worked. Wanger's idea for the production design not only impressed the executives, but left them with dollar signs in their eyes. They were convinced it would bring them even bigger profits. By 1959, the budget for the film had increased to almost $5 million, and the studio could now afford a bigger star for the leading role. Among those considered were actresses like Audrey Hepburn and Sophia Loren. Walter Wanger, however, had only one woman in mind for the role, Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor was about to be released from her 15-year contract with MGM, and would soon be free to choose the next film she wanted to star in. In J. Randy Tabiarelli's book, Elizabeth, the story of how Wanger approached Taylor to play the part is explained on page 180. Legend has it that Wanger called Elizabeth on the set of Suddenly Last Summer and related the offer through Eddie Fisher, who had answered the phone. As a joke, Taylor supposedly replied, Sure, tell him I'll do it for a million dollars. Elizabeth told the story that way in her 1965 memoir. Of it, Eddie says today, Maybe it happened that way, maybe it didn't. Who can remember? But if it gets me in the story, then yeah, that's how it happened. Elizabeth's salary for Cleopatra was indeed astronomical for the times, the most any actor or actress had ever been paid. However, none of her movies had ever lost money, so she was well worth it. On October 15, 1959, Taylor signed the million-dollar contract, making 20th Century Fox the first studio ever to pay an actor such an exorbitant sum for the role. Also according to Tabiarelli and Elizabeth on page 200, her million-dollar fee was broken down into about $125,000 a week in salary, as well as other financial disbursements along the way. She also got $3,000 a week in living expenses, plus food and lodging. Elizabeth also demanded that Cleopatra be shot in Todd A.O., rather than 20th Century Fox's own trademark widescreen process, Cinemascope, so that, as owner of the company, she had inherited it from Mike Todd, she would derive royalties from its use. 
She actually owned a third of Cleopatra through her own corporation, MCL Inc., the initials of her three children. She would also receive 10% of the film's gross receipts. Spiros Piscorus happily agreed to Taylor's contract demands and hired Ruben Mamoulian to direct the film. Mamoulian was a Russian-Armenian visual artist from the old days of filmmaking and was well-known for being able to work well with and coach great performances out of temperamental actresses and was a friend of studio head Spiroscorus. Fox decided to film in England at Pinewood Studios. Mamoulian disapproved of the choice, but the studio was adamant. The weather in England was not ideal for filming, but Pinewood Studios had all the necessary resources to make a large-scale film. Also in Fox's favor, the English government had in place a tax concession called the ED Plan at the time which stipulated that if enough British cast and crew were involved in the making of the film, then the government would put up funds toward the production. This meant that Mamoulian had to choose his cast from a pool of available British actors. Peter Finch was cast as Caesar by Elizabeth Taylor's request. Finch had worked with Taylor in Elephant Walk, then Stephen Boyd as Mark Antony, and Keith Baxter as Octavian. It was going to be eight weeks in England, and it was... £2,000 a week, which was a uh, king's ransom to me then, it was a lot of money. With much of the cast and crew now in place, a small fortune was spent testing various costumes. The Pinewood footage shows, in some very short scenes, Peter Fitch in uniform as a room general, and he looks very commanding. The money that was being shelled out was absolutely unbelievable. I had a very grand rope for when I became Imperial Caesar at the end, and it was embroidered with oak leaves and laurels, and it was embroidered by the, the women that had, the seamstresses who had embroidered the Queen's coronation gown. And they had made four of them. Tabiarelli writes on page 188 of Elizabeth, With Butterfield 8 finally out of the way, Elizabeth Taylor was finally free to do something she really wanted, make the film Cleopatra. September 28, 1960, was the day scheduled for the beginning of principal photography on that film. For the production, an eight-acre outdoor lot at Pinewood Studios, some 15 miles northwest of London, had been majestically recreated as the ancient city of Alexandria, at a cost of about $600,000. Peter Finch had been cast as Julius Caesar, Stephen Boyd as Mark Antony. After numerous revisions, the script was now being honed into a final draft by screenwriter Dale Wasserman, who had been instructed by Walter Wanger to focus all of his attention on the development of Elizabeth's role. The film was about Elizabeth Taylor, and I was to write it as a vehicle for her, with only her in mind throughout, he recalled. This was made clear to me at the outset. Though she now occupied a big part of his creative world, Wasserman had never even met Elizabeth. He based his work on his observations of her after repeatedly viewing most of her movies. As the book states, on September 28, 1960, principal photography began on Cleopatra. What it does not mention, however, is that the production was halted as quickly as it had begun, when the British Hairdressers Union went on strike after learning of the presence on set of Elizabeth Taylor's Hollywood hairstylist, Sidney Gilleroff. The union's grievance was that the Hollywood hairdresser's presence presented them with a breach of contract. When Elizabeth refused to remove him and have a hairdresser from the Union, Wanger struck a deal with him that her hair would be done off-set by Gilleroff at her hotel, and the Union would later touch it up on set when needed. 
An agreement was struck, and another problem arose. The weather. Not only did it cause various plaster and papier-mâché sets to peel and wilt, it also caused Elizabeth to fall sick. Tabiarelli discusses this on pages 188 through 191 of Elizabeth. On November 13th, Elizabeth's health took a turn for the worst. She awakened with a terrible headache. So bad and persistent was the pain that a doctor had to be summoned. Before long, Elizabeth was checked into a hospital, now suffering from spinal meningitis. Out of the blue and without warning, it was as if her pain, misery, and anger continued to have no outlet other than through the slow and utter destruction of her body. After a week's stay in the hospital, Elizabeth, Eddie, and the children abruptly took off for Palm Springs, where she would recuperate, leaving those invested in Cleopatra in London to wonder if she would ever return to the set, and if so, when. By this time, $7 million had been spent on the film. The movie was already proving to be a financial disaster, and Elizabeth had stepped before a camera only a handful of times, giving the studio about 12 minutes of usable footage for its millions. At the rate she was going, it promised to be many months before she would find her stride as an actress in this film. Elizabeth's absences had already cost Lloyds of London, the production's insurer, millions of dollars. Therefore, 20th Century Fox made the decision to shut down the production, as if they had any other choice, with its star in ocean and a continent away. During this time on set, Elizabeth, when she was able to appear before her hospitalization and rehabilitation in Palm Springs, was often so ill from the meningitis attacking her body that she had to be carried to and from the set for costume tests. And when her illness took a turn for the worse, several doctors, including Queen Elizabeth's personal physician, Lord Evans, were called in to attend to the ailing star. Eventually, Taylor's absences forced the production to shoot around her, causing the film to lose over $100,000 a day. Keith Baxter remembered some of the difficulties the production encountered while waiting for Taylor's health to improve. They were looking for things to film. There was a lot to film for Finch, and some was seen void exterior stuff, but they couldn't do any of the interior scenes because his scenes were mostly with her, obviously. And action! But they had me to film, so I did these scenes, but very little. I shot a part of my arrival in Alexandria after the defeat of Antony. The focus of the film was so much on Cleopatra, there was so little that could be done that she wasn't in. At some point during the production of Cleopatra, Roddy also suffered a couple of medical issues, though they were not at all as severe as co-star Elizabeth's. He had a boil flare-up one day, which was so severely inflamed and painful that it had to be lanced. Later on in the production, he also chipped a tooth. By November 18th, nothing could be done without Elizabeth. The production was forced to go on hold for one month, and the script now had to be rewritten. 
The rewrites were arriving every day in pink pages, blue pages, green pages, like a snowstorm. And when one went down to do these costing tests, Mamoulin was sitting in a corner with some scribe, you know, writing something. It was, that was a nightmare. There came a point where they had to shut the production down because they had shot everything they could without Miss Taylor's presence on set. Production was put on hold for one month, time enough for Taylor to recover and for the script to receive a badly needed rewrite. To that end, the studio brought in Academy Award-winning screenwriter Nunnally Johnson. He was paid $140,000 to polish the script. Production began again in January 1961, when Elizabeth returned fully recovered from her vacation. However, the English winter was still wreaking havoc. The freezing temperatures combined with the freezing rains were still constant. They were causing the palm trees on the set to wilt, and the papier-mâché set decorations to deteriorate, necessitating the need for them to be rebuilt daily, costing the production more money. To top off those frustrations, Peter Finch was beginning to present a problem on set. The actor, who out of boredom from the constant delays, felt as though he was losing his mind, and began spending hours getting so drunk in the green room on set that he would come to a point where he would, in a drunken stupor, sit and stare blankly at the wall for hours. These delays also gave the stars time to reconsider the script, which Taylor and Finch found appalling. Mamoulian liked that script. Elizabeth Taylor and Peter Finch didn't. They couldn't act it. It was unactable. Once again using her clout, Elizabeth Taylor demanded a script meeting with Mamoulian. She didn't want her first post-MGM vehicle to be a second-rate B-movie, which is where she felt the production was headed. Taylor knew that if the movie failed, neither the script nor the director would be blamed. Fingers would be pointed at the million-dollar actress. But Mamoulian defended his script, and in a bid to gain more time, the director threatened to resign. To assert his authority, Mamoulian put forward a ultimatum, thinking that he would be backed by other people, and it backfired. I, he called bluff with Scurus and didn't expect to be fired. After years of dealing with moguls like Louis B. Mayer, her boss at MGM, Taylor knew how to play hardball. She told the studio to accept the director's resignation, and to Mamoulian's surprise, they did. On January 18, 1961, Ruben Mamoulian left the production, having spent 16 weeks and $7 million and leaving behind only 10 minutes of usable film. 20th was once again faced with two decisions. Shut down the entire production for good or try again. Scorus, being a risk taker, chose to try their luck one more time. However, the film was once again in need of a director. Taylor, who had not only broken history being the first million-dollar actress for the production, was also given something else which would make history for actors and actresses from that time forward. Director approval. There were only two directors of whom Taylor would approve, George Stevens and Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Since Stevens was already directing The Greatest Story Ever Told, Mankiewicz was the only choice remaining. Scorus approached Joseph L. Mankiewicz to take over as director, but Mankiewicz was reluctant to take the job. The writer-director was currently on vacation, enjoying quality time at an island vacation home with his friend and host, actor Hume Cronin. 
he declined the position several times, until Scorus offered him several million dollars to take the job. On February 1st, 1961, Mankiewicz arrived in London to take over the production. The miserable English weather, however, still continued to harm Elizabeth Taylor's weak immune system. And as Tabiarelli writes on page 189 in his biography of the star's life, would soon result in Elizabeth brushing much too closely with death. March 4th, 1961, a day Elizabeth Taylor would never forget. She, Eddie, and the children were in London, staying at the Dorchester Hotel. She was getting ready to finally begin work on the almost forgotten Cleopatra film and would shortly be leaving for Rome. On this day, though, something in her body had gone very wrong, and without warning, she collapsed. She was found on the floor, suffocating, her face turning blue, her fingernails black. By sheer coincidence, down the hall from Elizabeth's room, a bachelor party was being given for a young medical student. The hotel operator figured that a doctor would be at that party and made a call to the room. Sure enough, a noted anesthesiologist was there. He ran down the hallway to Elizabeth's room, where he found her on the bed, nearly unconscious. He tried to dislodge the congestion in her throat with his finger, but to no avail. Then he pushed his finger against her eye, pressuring it to ensure that she would not go into a coma. She woke up instantly, took one look at him, hurled an epithet at him, and then passed out again. Arrangements were made for Elizabeth's immediate transportation to the London Clinic. There, an emergency tracheotomy was performed. While she was on the operating table, though, she says she woke up. Looking at all of the doctors and nurses around her, she tried to speak. However, the air from her lungs just went straight out the gaping hole in her throat. When a nurse noticed that Elizabeth had come out of the anesthesia, she saw the terror in her eyes and leaned over to comfort her. Elizabeth asked for a piece of paper and a pen. In scrawled handwriting, she wrote, Am I still dying? Then she lost consciousness again. After the tracheotomy, it did not look good for Elizabeth. By this time in her life, she'd had a nervous breakdown, colitis, three cesarean sections, a tonsillectomy, anemia, a crushed spinal disc, bronchitis, meningitis, phlebitis, a broken leg, torn knee ligaments, double pneumonia, food poisoning, a splinter in her eye, three vertebrae replaced in her spine, a tracheotomy, illnesses and accidents by the score. And she wasn't even 30. When the news got out that Elizabeth Taylor was in her final days, thousands gathered in the streets in front of the hospital to hold vigil for her. There were prayer services all over the world, it doesn't overstate it to say that the possibility that Elizabeth might die was major worldwide news. Some news outlets even erroneously reported that she had died, much to her later glee. Many historians have pointed to this time in her life as the period during which Elizabeth garnered the most sympathy thus far, thereby softening her image as a tempestuous homewrecker. It's true, she certainly now seemed more fragile and vulnerable than ever before. Of course, she recovered. She always, somehow, recovered. Didn't she? Facing a long recovery this time, Elizabeth once again returned to the United States, making headlines at her arrival. Back in the United States after her brush with death in London, Elizabeth Taylor is carried from her plane in a wheelchair. 
The arrival at New York of the actress, who was in England to play the title role in Cleopatra, is graphically filmed. She takes the excitement like the true trooper she is, though she's still weak from her bout with an exceptionally virulent form of pneumonia. And now, representing a triumph for the will to live, she's off to California for a long rest in which fully to recuperate. While Elizabeth recovered in California, Mankiewicz, thinking he had plenty of time to flesh out a new and better story from scratch, began rewriting the script. He would soon learn, however, that his thoughts were incorrect. As he wrote, Taylor's brave struggle to recover her health earned her the forgiveness of her harshest critics and the recognition of her peers. On April 17, 1961, Elizabeth Taylor received the year's Best Actress Award for her performance in Butterfield 8. I don't really know how to express my gratitude for this and for everything. Some critics speculated that the statue was given more for her ailments than her acting. You've now got an Oscar-winning talent. That's as close to a sure thing as you're going to get in an industry where there's almost constant anxiety and terror about what the next disaster is going to be. Taylor's Oscar offered Scurris further hope that Fox's investment in the actress would pay off. But the studio chief's improved outlook vanished when insurance companies refused to cover the chronically ill actress. They suggested alternate stars to the studio, including Marilyn Monroe. Oftentimes when a star is uninsurable, it means their potential for trouble is that much greater, and obviously there's a huge risk in going forward. But with over $12 million already committed to the project, Fox had no choice but to press on. The production now faced yet another challenge. As Mankiewicz echoed the sentiments voiced by Mamoulian that England could not double for Egypt, and Taylor's husband Eddie Fisher voiced his feelings that a warmer climate was better for his wife's health, the studio was forced to face reality. The months in England had indeed proved that the film's leading English rose would only wither in the consistently frigid and damp English weather. In order to prevent a recast, and to ensure that Elizabeth would not fall ill again, the production was forced to seek a tropical climate to which it could relocate. The London set was shut down and dismantled, and eventually, after several weeks of searching, the location chosen for filming was announced to be in Rome, Italy, at Cinecitta Studios. Here, Mankiewicz worked 24 hours a day, seven days a week, overseeing every facet of pre-production, including the massive construction of sets by production designer John DeCure. My father called him the city planner, and Johnny loved to build big. And he was a brilliant man. Johnny built a Roman Forum, which I think is three times the size of the real Roman Forum. Because it was just thought that the real Roman Forum was just not impressive enough. The scope of construction was so vast that Cleopatra caused a countrywide shortage of building materials in Italy. The sets weren't only grand in scale. Every detail was attended to no matter the cost. Adding to the pressures of pre-production, casting changes became necessary when after nearly a year of waiting, Peter Finch and Stephen Boyd bowed out of the revamped project, citing previous obligations. Lawrence Olivier was the next thought for Caesar, but he had a commitment with the National Theatre. 
Then came Rex. He had done several films with Rex, and he loved Rex as an actor. Rex Harrison jumped at the chance to work with Mankiewicz again. The 53-year-old actor had been a disciple of George Bernard Shaw, and it was Shaw's Caesar and Cleopatra that would serve as the basis for the first part of the story. With Taylor's health recovered and Harrison on board, the only principal role left to cast was that of Mark Antony. Mankiewicz turned to 36-year-old Richard Burton, who had starred in Fox's 1953 hit, The Robe. The Welsh-born actor was known as a gifted performer with a dynamic screen presence. Richard was playing King Arthur in Camelot on Broadway. So Fox then approached the management of the musical and said, we are prepared to buy Richard's contract. And the management of Camelot, being no fools, quoted some absolutely gigantic sum of money. After spending a quarter of a million dollars to pry Burton loose from his Camelot contract, the international cast was rounded out with established character actors including Roddy McDowell, Martin Landau, Carol O'Connor, and Hume Cronin. There are very few dates I remember, but that rem I remember. We arrived together on September the 19th. I was signed for ten weeks. It turned out that I was there ten and a half months. Added to the mix were dozens of production technicians from England and the United States. Thousands of extras were hired to prepare for the massive battle scenes and intricate choreography. Over 20,000 different costumes were issued, only a fraction of which had been salvaged from the Pinewood Studios production. Almost immediately, producer Walter Wanger faced yet another labor dispute when the female extras complained about their overly tight and revealing costumes. By June 6th, the production was spending nearly $70,000 per day. Having been bought out of Camelot for their roles in Cleopatra, Roddy and Richard Burton began preparing to leave for Rome. Roddy still had one last performance to play in his role as Sir Mordred on Broadway, which fell on his birthday. September 17, 1961. With his final performance completed and the role of Sir Mordred given to his understudy John Collum, Roddy was now free to leave, and soon he, Richard, Sybil and the girls, and John Valva, who had an uncredited role in the film as well, which sadly ended up on the cutting room floor by the film's completion, all arrived at their rented villa at the end of the month. Feeling the pinch in its pockets, the studio began counting its pennies, Co-star Martin Landau remembered that every time he returned to the set after traveling for other projects, he would learn that the production costs for the film would have increased, and with each departure and return, the price tag was always one million dollars higher. Spiros Skouris was thought to have been hiding the truth of the actual budget from the studio in America for fear of having the production shut down or his replacement being ordered. In order to ensure that 20th never learned of the exact amount, Scorus hired and fired several accountants until he found one who was willing to falsify the budget, which was to be sent to the studio executives for review. Scorus was informed by several people above him that the production must be shut down. He ignored their advice, and instead of shutting down the production, chose to order Mankiewicz to begin filming immediately, despite the fact that the writer-director had not completed the script. This was born out of a need for Skouris to have footage to show his employers in America, 
to prove they had made progress while spending all this money on the production. The director begged for more time, but Scorus refused to give it to him. In November, Elizabeth's contract would go into overtime, which would cost the studio an additional $50,000 a week. Scorus was determined to avoid this and would not budge from his demands that filming begin right away. Having no other choice, Mankiewicz agreed, and on September 29, 1961, cameras once again began rolling on Cleopatra. Elizabeth Taylor showed up for work in good health and in high spirits. You've gotten off to a bad start, haven't we? I've done nothing but rub you the wrong way. I'm not sure I want to be rubbed by you at all, young lady. Over the following weeks, most of the scenes focused on the relationship between young Cleopatra and her mentor, Julius Caesar, played by Rex Harrison. Oh, it's you. You uh, wanted to see me? I summoned you yesterday to an audience in my throne room. I was told I was not permitted to go there. For one thing, it's too close to the quarters occupied by your brother, Petinus, Theodotus, and the rest. I will not be told where I can go and where I cannot go. Isn't this obviously nothing that you want of me? Accept my throne. Rex was an ideal Caesar in, in many ways. He had the authority, he had the charm, and uh, in the situation that, that he was put in as Caesar in the film of being uh, the older lover, I think he would have all the qualities required. I've had my fill with the smug condescension of you worn-out pretenders parading on the ruins of your past glories. The future that concerns me. If it is, keep out of my affairs and do as I say. Do as you say? Literally? As if I was something you had conquered? If I choose to regard you as such. Am I to understand, then, that you feel free to do with me whatever you want? Whenever you want? Yes, I want that understood. Watching the dailies in New York, Spiris Scorus was reassured. Cleopatra would be worth all the money he was pouring into it. Meanwhile, Mankiewicz kept writing the unfinished script, often writing new scenes by hand between takes as the actors did all they could to stave off boredom while not filming. Hume Cronin even went as far as to buy himself a car so that he could drive through the countryside when he wasn't needed for a scene. As cast and crew sat idly around wondering when and if they would be called in for work, costs for the production were growing more and more outrageous by the minute, and executives scrambled to cut them, whilst the money kept flowing and going somewhere often to private hands behind closed doors. It was soon discovered that there was a lot of corruption taking place among production crew. Roddy, meanwhile, was growing more and more anxious, and felt himself beginning to go stir-crazy from boredom. He had only worked one day in four months after being cast as Octavian, and was now desperate for any kind of work. Up to this point, he had kept himself busy, following Elizabeth and other cast members around the set, photographing them and various other goings-on around and about the production. But now he too found that the lack of any real activity day in and day out, hoping to be called for a scene only to be disappointed, was slowly driving him mad. Peter Finch and several other cast members in the past had fallen to drink or other vices to stave off frustration, but Roddy was wiser than that and using that infinite wisdom, placed a call for help to Darrow Levzanik. 
I called Daryl up in Paris and said, please give me anything. Uh, I want anything. I have to work. Consequently, Zanuck then offered McDowell and Burton small roles in The Longest Day, which was shooting in France. Both Roddy and Richard had very small cameos in the film, with only a handful of lines between them. Richard ultimately got more speaking and screen time than Roddy did, but both made an impact on the picture. Roddy's character, a bespectacled young Southern soldier, excitedly turns at one point to his commanding officer and announces with glee that he had successfully hit his target, a member of the opposing army's ranks, and had killed him, only to find upon shaking the man lying limply next to him that the man he had just killed had killed his commanding officer just seconds before. The realization that the officer is dead sinks in fast, and Roddy grows pale in his last second on screen before the scene cuts to more bloodshed on the battlefield. Compared to Cleopatra's staggering budget, the longest day's $8 million bottom line seemed almost minuscule. But Zanuck was beginning to feel the financial pressure from Fox. When he asked the company for $2 million more million to complete his masterpiece, he was turned down by Fox president Spiros Skouras. Zanuck was angered at the refusal. He was also fearful that the company he'd co-founded would sink under the weight of the runaway production in Rome. Zanuck was also getting reports from the set suggesting that Cleopatra wasn't only taking a toll on Fox, it was all but killing its director. It got to a point where, quite literally, I thought he might die. I thought one day on the set, with people grabbing at him in all directions, what should we do about this? How would you like that? Uh, what color should this be? Uh, uh, how do I get there? Uh, where have I been? Uh, whatever. The endless questions that came from the crew and the cameraman and the actors, you know, and you're pulled in 10 different directions. It becomes almost impossible to concentrate. Then you have to go home and sit down and write and the turmoil was, um, ugh. He finally wound up getting an injection in the mornings to get him going, sometimes another one after lunch, and a shot at night to get him to sleep. But in spite of exhaustion, chaos, and intense pressure, Mankiewicz was proud of what he was accomplishing. He considered many of the filmed scenes to be among his best work. In the name of the Senate and the people of Rome, and by their will. Isis herself will surrender her place in heaven to be as beautiful as you. You're not supposed to look at me. No one is. But if they aren't looking at they know that I am. You should be kneeling. But that too, before all these visiting kings. Making believe that they're not watching us. You have such bony knees. Not only bony, but I'm accustomed to this sort of thing. On October 16th, Mankiewicz prepared for the largest scene in the history of film. Cleopatra's epic entrance into the Eternal City. But the large-scale scenes called for in the script caused nothing but trouble for the cast and crew. 
When a scantily clad female extra who had been hired to ride into the city on the back of an elephant lost her balance and skidded down the animal's rough hide, she ended up losing half the skin on her backside and halfway down her legs. This serious injury caused the extra to have to be replaced. The actress who replaced her, however, weighed 40 pounds more than her predecessor, and when Richard Burton reached up to lift her from her seat and place her upon the next elephant behind, he was not expecting the additional weight and tumbled backwards in surprise, landing waist-deep in a basket of azaleas behind him on the set. Then, director of photography Leon Shamroy caused difficulties for the production. Shamroy was a picky and rather grumpy perfectionist, who had a habit of micromanaging and nitpicking a scene to death. The final shot of Cleopatra's triumphal parade into Rome looks magnificent to audiences who view it, but Shamroy saw nothing but tiny, imperceptible imperfections. The director of photography felt the light wasn't good enough to do the shots, and called for shooting to be delayed for six months, until the seasons changed and the sun's direction would turn enough to satisfactorily fill the gigantic set. Luckily, there was enough of the scene shot to help Spiros Skouris defend himself to the Fox Board of Directors. Skouris entered the meeting fearing for his job, but after screening selected portions of the procession sequence, the board's attitude towards Skouris and Cleopatra had changed. Cleopatra was the film that would save 20th Century Fox. But one of Fox's major shareholders, former studio chief Daryl F. Zanuck, disagreed. He warned the board that Cleopatra was likely to sink the studio, and he let it be known that he was not about to let that happen. By the end of 1961, there was plenty of reason to be optimistic. Cleopatra was at last on a steady schedule. Almost half of the film had been shot, and Mankiewicz was writing a rich, visually compelling story. On January 5th, 1962, Cleopatra's cast and crew returned from a brief Christmas hiatus. Mankiewicz filmed this sequence where Julius Caesar confides his desire to become emperor to both Cleopatra and Mark Antony. They resent me to flaunt me like this. They'll use it to keep from you that which is already yours. By divine right, is that not so? Yes, it is. By divine right. We shall have the Senate in its deliberations deliberate that. It marked the first time during the long production that Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton worked together in a scene. Are you quite sure what it is you want? So desperately? I've always been sure. And Caesar? Does anyone speak for him? Hollywood star and the Welsh-born actor had met years earlier. At that time, Taylor had found Richard Burton brash and offensive. But when Burton showed up for work on Cleopatra that first morning, Elizabeth was shocked to discover another side to the actor. The first day on the set, Burton arrived 
absolutely brutally hungover. So hungover that he had the shakes. And Elizabeth ha had to help him raise a cu cup of coffee to his lips. And she described him as all giggly and, and boyish and childlike and helpless and needy. And it brought out the mother in her. She found it, her word was endearing. That here was this titanic actor, intellectual, a needy child. Tell me how many have left you since him? One? Ten? Anyone? No one? Have they kissed you with Caesar's lips, touched you with his hands? Has it been his name you cried out in the dark? And afterwards alone, has he reproached you and have you begged forgiveness of his memory? You come here then running over with wine and self-pity to conquer Caesar. So long now. You filled my life. Like, like a great noise that I hear everywhere in my heart. I want to be free of you. Taylor and Burton quickly became lovers, first discreetly, but soon the secret was out. And once it was, Burton and Taylor became open on the set with their relationship, while their spouses appeared completely oblivious to what was happening. When word reached the studio, Executives scrambled in an attempt to hide the affair. But as always happens in Hollywood, word soon leaked out to the press. This started a feeding frenzy, which would soon become a major media scandal. And at one point on Valentine's Day, 1962, Roddy found it necessary to seek Burton out on the set to give him some bad news. Finding Burton, he approached him to say, Sybil's about to blow the joint, meaning she was planning to take their daughters and leave him. Eventually, the mushrooming press coverage took a terrible toll on Burton's marriage. In March 1962, Sybil Burton left Italy for England, although the move only served to fan the flames. Reports of the affair degenerated into personal attacks on Elizabeth Taylor. She was now being accused of everything from irresponsibility to immorality. The Vatican got into the act, too, saying that she was a bad influence on the world in general and that her children should be taken away from her. She was denounced on the floor of Congress because, of course, she had been born in England uh, and had dual citizenship as such, and uh, uh, several congressmen wanted to take away her passport. The affair was talked about, joked about, and parodied, not only in the press, but even on primetime television. You're always forgetting my birthday. What do you want, a new snake every year? <laughs> Who do you think you are, Liz Taylor? How about it? You and I will take that night boat on the Nile, just the two of us? Sure, just the two of us. And a thousand slaves rowing. <laughs> just my luck, one of them will be Eddie Fisher. For Eddie Fisher, the public humiliation was devastating. Eddie Fisher was in really poor shape. She described him wandering the villa, not bathing, staying in his pajamas all day long. Dad advised Eddie uh, to go back to New York. He said, Eddie's really out of his league here with, with this romance. I mean, these two people uh, will eat him alive. Uh, they're so in love with each other. On March 19, 1962, Eddie Fisher fled to New York. 
There, the public seemed to have forgotten his messy divorce from Debbie Reynolds. They now sympathized with the singer. But despite the off-screen problems, Mankiewicz still had a film to complete. And one pivotal and costly sequence was still unfinished. Cleopatra's triumphant procession into Rome. On May 8th, 1962, six months after the aborted first attempt to film the scene, cameras rolled as an endless parade of extras in exotic costumes swarmed through the Arch of Titus. She got on top of this 30-foot sphinx, was drawn through the arch, and instead of yelling Cleopatra, Cleopatra like they were supposed to, they went wild and screamed, Liz! Liz! That's when the sexual revolution of the 60s was truly born. Liz had conquered the Pope. Despite all of the difficulties the sequence caused, Cleopatra's entrance into Rome would prove to be the most impressive scene ever recorded in cinema history. 20th Century Fox during this time was floundering even more, being in the direst financial straits it had ever experienced. In an attempt to keep its head above water, the studio began putting films into production, even if the scripts were not finished. One of the most notable films put into production during this time was the ill-fated and never-completed last film of Marilyn Monroe, Something's Gotta Give. The production was forced to shut down, and the beloved actress died soon after. Cleopatra was now 20th century's last chance for survival. So the studio heads sent word to Italy that everything that needed to be done in order to finish the picture was now given the go-ahead. This, however, meant that filming needed to be wrapped on all of Elizabeth Taylor's scenes, as she was one of the most expensive parts of the production, and the studio was reaching a point where they would soon no longer be able to pay her if she wasn't wrapped. One last shot had to be filmed, the barge sequence. The intricacy and special effects for this final shot of the lead actress included clouds of purple incense rising from burners on board the ship, and a close-up shot of a gilded golden rigging, which had cost $277,000 to build. Cameras rolled in Anzio on June 23rd, capturing the beautiful barge as it glided majestically through the Italian waters. The last close-up of Elizabeth, now filmed and printed, the most expensive lead actress in movie history returned home, with her final fee now totaling a whopping $7 million. But this successful last shot for the leading actress did not spell good tidings for the production as was originally thought. And soon, the bomb was lowered upon the director and producer once again. With several battle sequences still needing to be shot in Egypt, 20th Century Fox issued word that Walter Wanger was now fired as producer of the production, and he was ordered to return to Los Angeles. Wanger was devastated and wishing to save face, begged Scorus to let him remain in Italy at his own expense. Scorus agreed, and Wanger remained to finish the picture. Scorus and Fox executives now set their sights on The Longest Day, Darylev Zanuck's second World War film about the Allied invasion of Normandy, in the hopes that the film would bring desperately needed funds to the drowning studio. They thought that if they cut the film's running time and rushed it into theaters, they could raise the dollars they so badly needed. 
In a bid to save his film and the studio he founded in 1935, Zanuck armed himself for the battle of his life. On June 27, 1962, Daryl F. Zanuck arrived in New York for the quarterly meeting of the Fox Board of Directors. It was one of the most amazing uh, performances I've ever seen in my life. He hit them on an emotional level as the founder of the company and uh, absolutely uh, attacked them. And after a couple of hours of this tirade, they were totally wiped out and uh, he took over the company and it was as simple as that. When the smoke cleared, Skouris was out and Zanuck was in. Joe Mankiewicz now had three months to complete Cleopatra before Daryl F. Zanuck took over. With time and money running out, the production moved to Egypt to film the final battle sequences. And when the director requested more funds from the studio, they refused his request. Mankiewicz was now forced to fund the remains of the picture out of his own pocket. Rex Harrison, believing so much in the picture, and seeing how hard Mankiewicz was working to complete it, even offered up his own paycheck towards the completion of the picture, but Mankiewicz refused. Now in ill health, from months of overwork, stress, and lack of sleep, the writer-director was a physical wreck, dependent upon injections to keep him going. The doctors who gave him these shots at one point had injected him so many times that they struggled to find a new injection site and accidentally jabbed the director in his sciatic nerve, causing Mankiewicz debilitating pain. He would frequently be seen by his sons about the set, dragging his leg as he moved about, and the realization that this project could be fatal to their father became an immediate and very realistic concern. Despite intense pain and exhaustion, Mankiewicz soldiered on and completed principal photography for Cleopatra on July 24, 1962. However, the final shots now exposed the production's lack of financial resources, and the film's quality suffered. Now having returned to Los Angeles, Mankiewicz was faced with editing Cleopatra. For nearly a month, the director worked largely without supervision from the studio. But as Zanuck began asserting his power, he shut down all but the most necessary departments. He also installed his son, Richard, as head of production. Cleopatra literally closed the doors of that studio. Everything was closed down. They didn't have any scripts ready that were worth anything. Nothing. Leaving his son to oversee daily operations, Zanuck concentrated on rebuilding the studio's empty treasury. One available source of revenue was The Longest Day. And despite the studio's desperate finances, a big, splashy premiere was considered critical to the film's success. The man responsible for the gala premiere, Daryl F. Zanuck, attends with Irina Demick, who plays the part of the underground heroine in The Longest Day. Now president of 20th Century Fox, The Longest Day was Mr. Zanuck's ultimate production before assuming his duties as chief executive. A final effort which elevates Miss Demick to stardom. I was with him the night of the premiere. And I was sitting right next to him. 
in Paris. Eddie just pee off singing from the Eiffel Tower. What a night, what a showman he was. Zanuck's epic was hailed as a monumental achievement in filmmaking. And the longest day would go on to gross over $18 million in its first year of release. But as Fox accountants waited for the badly needed money to trickle in, the Hollywood studio remained a ghost town. There were no cars. The commissary was closed. Only the administration building had a few offices that were working. And there was the unit editing Cleopatra. That was it. There was nothing on the lot. No pictures in preparation. Nobody under contract. No, uh, nothing. And it was really eerie to look at. In one of the few buildings that remained open, Mankiewicz diligently continued to cut Cleopatra. The director had originally intended to make two films, Antony and Cleopatra and Caesar and Cleopatra, in the vein of Shakespeare and Shaw, each film being three hours apiece to make a six-hour epic. But Zanuck disapproved of this idea, and informed Mankiewicz that he must combine the two films into one, leaving more than two hours of script and production expenses on the cutting room floor. I think the major rationale from a studio head's point of view was that Taylor and Burton, this was the biggest romance in the history of film. And Zanuck said, look, if I put out Caesar and Cleopatra, in which Richard Burton appears for about five minutes, or it was okay, seven minutes, and then we wait another six or seven months and put out Antony and Cleopatra, what if these two people aren't with each other anymore? Mankiewicz was bitterly disappointed but he had to bow to Zanuck's inarguable logic. On October 13, 1962, Mankiewicz flew to Paris to screen his cut of Cleopatra for Zanuck. The film ran five hours and 20 minutes. As the studio chief watched the film unfold, he was not pleased with what he saw. You will kneel. I will what? On your knees. You dare ask the proconsul of the Roman Empire? I asked it of Julius Caesar. I demand it of you. Zanuck felt, and rightfully so, that the role of Antony was a very weak man who allowed Cleopatra to walk all over him, behavior that he found detestable in both characters. The studio head was also unimpressed with what he felt to be painfully long and amateurish battle sequences throughout the film. Zanuck believed that movies should move, and he hated films that were overly long, so he ordered the film to be cut even more. Soon the director and the studio head were engaged in a bitter battle over what stayed in the final cut of Cleopatra and what was to go. Mankiewicz and Zanuck had never gotten along well, and it soon became apparent that one or the other of them had to go. Zanuck ended up making the final decision and fired Mankiewicz. The media immediately went into a feeding frenzy, and Mankiewicz used their outrage to fuel the fires for his case. He had this wonderful statement when he was removed, saying, Old Joe's worked in the cotton fields for a long time, and he knows when Mars Darrell speaks. I mean, it was just dripping with, uh, with Addison DeWitt out of All About Eve. The studio boss and the dismissed director were now embroiled in a public brawl played out via letters and newspaper columns. But even an experienced storyteller like Zanuck 
could not make the jumbled bits and pieces of story fit. There had never been an actual shooting script. Frustrated, Zanuck found he needed help to salvage Cleopatra. He needed Joe Mankiewicz. By the end of November, they were crawling back to have him come and, and do the rest of the thing. He was persuaded that, that somebody was going to do it, so better he should do it and save, you know, save the film from being disemboweled by someone who had never been there and didn't really know what the attempt was uh, for the various scenes and so forth. For weeks, Zanuck and Mankiewicz collaborated on cut after cut. But despite their differences, there was one thing on which both men agreed. The film's opening battle scenes looked cheap and unconvincing. Reluctantly, Zanuck ordered the sequence reshot. In February 1963, Mankiewicz reassembled the cast and crew in Spain, this time with Zanuck on location with the director as overseer of the do-over. With the newly redone footage in hand, Mankiewicz returned to Los Angeles to complete the arduous task of editing his first major motion picture epic. But he was heartbroken at what he found. He felt that the film would never be the great picture he had hoped it would be. But his hope sprung eternal that maybe, just maybe, it would still be a good one. By May 1963, the film's new runtime was four hours, three minutes with different pacing and the added attention on two key characters that were almost missed due to delirious cuts, Egypt and Rome. My death scene wasn't in the movie, uh, the actual killing, because uh, I assure Mark Antony the men will not desert. Wake up in the morning, the men have deserted. And you actually see me run the sword through me. And because I have long arms, I had little trouble with the sword. Richard's arms were shorter, so when he committed suicide, there was a line added. I always envied Rufio his long arms. In the final version, you find me dead. You're not sure why I'm dead, whether I was killed by the men or the enemy or or did myself in, so there was a little confusion. Rufio. But Daryl Zanuck didn't have time to mourn the lost subtleties of the storyline. Fox was eager to get the film finished and into theaters. Elizabeth Taylor as Cleopatra, Siren of the Nile. Her stunning beauty and notorious intrigue turned the tide of civilization. Remember, remember. I want you to forget me, please. Forget? Oh, I can never be more far away from you than this. The studio wanted to strike while the public interest in the Taylor Burton affair was still at its peak. The premiere of Cleopatra was scheduled for June 12, 1963. As the film entered its final phase of post-production, Fox began to craft a marketing and promotional campaign unlike anything seen before.
Despite expensive seating prices, ticket sales for Cleopatra at the box office soared. The film even inspired the fashion industry, as the Cleopatra look was unveiled in advertising everywhere in promotion of the film. The studio's publicity machine pumped the advertising for all it was worth in fashion, behind-the-scenes stories, and historical pieces for art history. Andy Warhol felt that Cleopatra was the most influential film of the 1960s for style, and when trendy, asymmetrical haircuts named for the Queen and a magazine spread on the women of Cleopatra were released to the public, it became apparent that the movie was now a new and important part of American pop culture. The Egyptian style of makeup was downgraded some to become what is popularly known today as the cat's eye in women's fashion, and was featured frequently on actresses on popular television shows of the 1960s, remaining a trend even up to 2019. The world premiere of Cleopatra took place on June 12, 1963 at the Rivoli Theater in New York City, with fans lined up ten feet deep in Times Square. The event was so gigantic, NBC set up a live remote crew to film the goings-on and air it on The Tonight Show after the premiere had ended. The New York Times gave the film a gorgeously favorable review, saying it was a surpassing entertainment, one of the great epic films of our day. However, New York Herald Tribune critic Judith Christ was not impressed, and proved it by venomously penning that the film was a monumental mouse. Ouch. Newsweek said at the time, at six hours, Cleopatra might have been a movie. But right now, it's a, it's a series of coming attractions for something that will never come. But at just over four hours, Cleopatra could only be run once per evening. With word of mouth being mixed, it would be next to impossible for the film to generate enough revenue. Against furious protest from Mankiewicz, Zanuck ordered further cuts. The result was a three-hour, 14-minute version of Cleopatra, distributed for general release. He was very unhappy. If you can imagine taking a movie that's six hours long, edited six hours long, and throwing half of it out, and squeezing it into three and a half hours or whatever it was, uh, clearly no artist would be happy with that. And, it was, and he was sure afraid that it was not, knew that it was not going to be anything like what he wanted. Roles that had already been trimmed down were now almost completely removed. God is disappointed that whatever contribution I had made to the film, which was, uh, I can't say was major, uh, but was creditable, was diminished to, uh, at the end of ten and a half months, to something which I could have shot in two weeks. It was this shorter version that premiered in Great Britain in August of 1963. Elizabeth Taylor, who had avoided the American premiere, attended only after great pressure from the studio. She said the final humiliation was having to go and see it. And she was forced into it. She went, she came out of there, rushed to the ladies' room and threw up. Anything that she was proud of in the movie had been cut. She infuriated the studio by going around telling everybody how much she hated the film. Nevertheless, whether due to studio hype or morbid curiosity, audiences around the world flocked to see Cleopatra. Unaware of what was missing, they liked what they saw. 
there was a buzz within the audience. This was truly the most opulent, most glamorous, beautifully staged, artistically motivated film, a beautiful screenplay, sumptuous sets, lavish music score. Everything about it was opulent. The prestigious Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was also impressed. In January 1964, they nominated Cleopatra for nine Academy Awards. Many in the industry thought that Roddy McDowell had given the best performance of his career, one worthy of an Oscar win for the year's best supporting actor. My lord, they have found Queen Cleopatra. She is locked in a building, that is to say, a tomb. Hurry. Oh, Mark Antony is with her, they say. He's dead. What? Lord Antony is dead. Is that how one says it? As simply as that. Mark Antony is dead. Lord Antony is dead. The soup is hot. The soup is cold. Antony is living, Antony is dead. Shake with terror when such words pass your lips. For fear they be untrue. And Antony, cut out your tongue for the lie, and if true. For your lifetime, boast that you were honored to speak his name even in death. The dying of such a man must be shouted. Scream. It must echo back from the corners of the universe. Antony is dead! Mark Antony of Rome lives no more! But sadly, a clerical error shut McDowell out of the running. A mistake that caused the studio to offer a public apology to the actor. The fact that he was nominated in the wrong category was a terrible blow. I know he was um, uh, suggested in, as a leading star instead of as a supporting role. It was a great, great tragedy. On April 13th, 1964, gold statuettes were picked up for best art direction, best costuming, best cinematography, and best special visual effects. The film's Academy Awards and success, however, seemed to sink under the weight of the years of bad publicity the film had received while it was being made. And to this day, it is still remembered as one of the most dismal failures in filmmaking history. Cleopatra was notorious when it was released, absolutely notorious. Good, bad, or indifferent, it had become uh, a film of... Um, such caricature and notoriety that uh, I don't think anybody could see the forest for the trees. The truth of Cleopatra was the opposite of what it is known to be, however, as it was in fact one of the top grossing and most influential films of the 1960s, earning a staggering $24 million at the time of its first release. However, the final production cost had been twice that amount, 
and with $44 million looming over the studio's head, it took several years for 20th Century Fox to break even again, despite the films regaining the studio back half the funds spent on the production. Apparently somewhere along the line, due to corruption during the production, foolish planning, Spiros P. Scorus's pride and desperation, and a plethora of other bad choices made by those in power during the time of filming, $5 million of the studio's money had gone missing and was never found. With Zanuck and Son in positions of leadership, Fox finally recovered from its financial woes, and after several film releases over a period of four years, including successes like The Sound of Music and Planet of the Apes, by 1968, 20th Century Fox was solvent again and no longer in debt. Taylor and Burton would continue on throughout the years, starring together in several films, marrying twice, divorcing twice, and finally splitting up for good in 1976. Their turbulent relationship remained a high-profile celebrity gossip columnist dream from the moment their affair began, and continues to keep people whispering even to this day, many years after Taylor and Burton have both passed away. Rex Harrison's career, untarnished by the woes of the production, continued to flourish, and he found himself winning more and more accolades, particularly after winning an Oscar for his performance as Henry Higgins in the 1964 musical My Fair Lady, in which he starred alongside Audrey Hepburn. Joseph L. Mankiewicz's career wilted, dwindled, and eventually fizzled out altogether. He never made a comeback after the disastrous events from the production of Cleopatra, despite having won four Academy Awards, and after directing the 1972 film Sleuth with Laurence Olivier and Michael Caine, Mankiewicz retired from directing forever. Producer Walter Wanger had similar sufferings. The completion of Cleopatra signaled the end of the ruined producer's career, and seeing the signs that the end had come, Wanger left Hollywood, never to work on another project again. Cleopatra also affected Hollywood itself, as it instituted the beginning of star power, where prior to the production, a star couldn't dictate their salary, nor could they have approval of director and script. But, after Elizabeth Taylor's historical contract was signed, stars of pictures now could have all of those things, and would eventually be given the power to choose whom they would be cast alongside, as Natalie Wood was allowed to do when casting Inside Daisy Clover in 1965. The film also taught the studio that it was never a good idea to base the salvation of a studio on the release of one movie as Paramount learned the hard way with Titanic in the 1990s. The upsurge in modern technology, as well as the success of cable television, VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray, and now streaming sites on the internet, has helped prevent film studios from going belly up since the time of Cleopatra. And smart studios are beginning to make lucrative partnership deals with streaming sites such as Netflix and Amazon Prime. Prestigious re-releases of restored Studio Vault films to DVD and Blu-ray over the years have helped classic films that were previously lesser heard of come out of obscurity and into the public eye, giving them greater importance and attention. In 1995, 20th Century Fox executives met with Roddy McDowell and members of the Joseph L. Mankiewicz family to discuss the possibility of rescuing and restoring Cleopatra to the epic six-hour length its director intended. My father asked me to his dying day to help him get Fox, to let him put back the film the way it was intended to be put together. 
Fox launched a worldwide investigation to track down hundreds of missing picture and sound elements. It's a search that continues even to this day, although some long-lost moments from both the Mamoulian and Mankiewicz productions have turned up. The restoration effort also resulted in the retrieval and remastering of more than two and a half hours of Alex North's Academy Award-nominated original score. I think the music for Cleopatra uh, is extraordinary in the sense that it brings to it uh, all of the Machiavellian madness uh, of the period. Music, which is uh, comprised of many, many overlays and overdubs. It's layer upon layer of exotic uh, instrumentation. That uh, gives you the impression of uh, snakes slithering across the floor. It's almost in the music you can hear uh, all of the uh, plots and counterplots and intrigues. There is still hope that the remaining three and a half hours of missing footage for the film will be found. And even today, 19 years after the documentary featured in this podcast was released, the search still goes on. The drama, the romance, the repression, the danger, the craziness... Stripped of all the hubris of publicity and the hype, looking at it from a distance of 40 years, we can see the pure film without all the other stuff. While the debate continues about what Cleopatra could have been or should have been, there is one fact that no one can disagree with. Cleopatra is a film that will never be duplicated. In adjusted dollars, the picture's $44 million cost would now tally more than 10 times that amount. It would be nice for that picture to be seen in its entirety. And I just think it would be nice to see that piece of art that has never been seen. The restoration of Cleopatra will come about eventually. I believe this missing footage, this three and a half hours of missing footage, will be found. Cleopatra is a name that conjures mystery, power, and seduction. It is also a name that has come to suggest opulence, grandeur, and great excess. It is the name of one of the most intriguing women who has ever lived. In the name of one of the greatest and most infamous films ever made. Was this well done of your lady? Extremely well. As befitting the last of so many noble rulers. And the Roman asked, 
Was this well done of your lady? And the servant answered, Extremely well, as befitting the last of so many noble rulers. Before I end today's episode, I would like to play the Innocence Mission's song, Happy Birthday Beautiful, as I did last year for Roddy. If you know the words, feel free to sing along. When you wake up, sun will shine.
That is all for this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Zoe Dean signing off and hoping that you'll be able to watch a film of Roddy's today in celebration of his memory. May his performance bring you so much joy that all you'll want to do is keep smiling. You seem to bring faraway spring near me. I'm always in full bloom when you're in the room for every night at seven. Every time the same thing happens, I fall once again in love, but only with you. Every night about seven. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. If you enjoy the show, a great way to help support us is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. This gives us a better idea of how we can constantly improve the program for your continued enjoyment. The podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by Zoe Dean. The occasional research assistant, co-writer, and constant help with this podcast is Julie Carricker. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of Barren Space Productions, its partners or affiliates. The musical tracks heard in this episode are from the original motion picture soundtrack of Cleopatra, composed and conducted by Alex North. The film clips used in this episode are from the 2000 documentary entitled Cleopatra, the film that changed Hollywood, and were narrated by the late television and film actor Robert Culp. Both the soundtrack to Cleopatra and the audio clips from the documentary remain the property of their respective owners, both of which fall under the copyrights belonging to 20th Century Fox. Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast does not own the rights to these tracks used, nor does it claim ownership. Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is not affiliated with any major film or television company, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit BarrenSpace.com for this and other amazing content. This has been a Barren Space production.